No. The word is not a part of the message at all. But the word, uh, the word problem, got this one all lined up for you. All right. The word problem is not the message at all. The word problem comes from the same root word as project, right? So it seems like, I wonder if the problems are kind of projected or put in front of us, you know, to cause us to pray, to cause us to draw nigh. Like all these things that we're talking about, all these things we're talking about, you know, kids having surgery and all this stuff, they don't escape God and they've been brought into our lives for a reason. As much as we want to just remove them, they've been brought into our lives for a reason. So we just have to be faithful to intercede and, and allow it to cause us to draw nigh. So um, I have no idea why I said that. But anyway, let's go into our book of Zephaniah. It has nothing to do with Zephaniah. Um, maybe somewhere it does. I guess I'm saying that because I mentioned that kid Christian, and I mentioned it on Tuesday night, but I don't think I mentioned it in front of the whole church. But the last time we were there, last was it last week or so? We were there last week, and um, Christian, they announced his name Christian. So you're sitting in the waiting room, and as much as you think you'd be social, you're not social there. Like you, you, you don't, people don't even look at each other. They don't even like make eye contact with each other. Uh, so this guy comes over and he goes, hey, your name is Christian? And uh, we go, yeah, yeah. He goes, my son's Christian too. And he points back there to him. And I go, all right, that's cool, man. Thanks. You know, he's trying to strike up a conversation. And um, he, goes, uh, he goes, I'll pray for you. You know, like, like, you know, kind of pushing through the awkwardness. And I'm like, thanks, brother. God bless. I just said like that. Thanks, man. God bless you too, man. So I turn to Christian and I go, well, when you get this IV out, which he was trying to pull out himself, which I was trying to stop him. I was like, when you get this IV out, we got to go say hello to this little kid. You know, you got to like give him a pound or something like that. So he gets the thing out and we go over to him and the kid's eating his little Pringles, yellow, bald, you know, like that's the Sloan look, you know, just like the skin is discolored and the hair is gone. And, uh, but the family's got a smile. They got another little girl in a baby carriage. And I go, hey, man, I want to say hello. He's like, oh, you know, Christian goes to pound the kid. The kid starts crying. <laughs> he thought you were going to try to take his Pringles. Um, I said, I know, man, once you pop, you can't stop. I get it. I said, you know. So anyway, but uh, I forgot how he said How did he say? We were talking about Christian. And, oh, and he says, um, I'm from Israel. I said, really? I was like, my friend's from Israel. He goes, yeah, I'm Arabic, though. I'm Arab, but I'm from Israel. He goes, my dad's a pastor. And then she hears that. She goes, oh, wow. And I go, are you saved? You a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, I'm saved. So I got one tract of Eli's. I gave Eli a tract. And he goes, yeah, and I, I met my wife over there at Pensacola Christian College, and, and, and this is Christian. It was, just a, it was just wild, you know, just to, that, that, that God allowed our paths to cross. And I know she saw him again. Uh, she saw him again today. But, like, when you get to the place that nothing's by accident, you know, like, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. That changes the way you look at everything. And I even said to this brother, I said, if I don't see you again, sir, I'll, brother, I'll, I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you in heaven. He's like, oh, his name was Shaq. So if you ever remember Shaq in Christian, and what was his wife's name? Ruth Ann or something like that. But just uh, remember them. Uh, it, was, it blew me away. But uh, that still has nothing to do with Zephaniah. So Zephaniah, all right. Three chapters, 53 verses, 1,616 words. The author is Zephaniah. His name means hidden of Jehovah, which we will get to why that's important. 
hidden of Jehovah. If you look at verse number one, the word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, that's Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So Zephaniah was probably a prince of the royal house of Judah. It looks like Zephaniah was a descendant of Hezekiah. Okay. Um, Very little is known about him. Um, He supposedly, people think he was young. Uh, Many suspect that he was a colleague or a contemporary of Jeremiah because they're both prophesying near the end of Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, He begins his prophetic ministry in the early days of Josiah. Josiah was the last good king in Judah. After that, it just went to hell in a handbasket really fast. But Josiah, you know, you had some uh, Israel, you know, there's the split, right? Israel, the northern ten tribes, every king was wicked. They were awful, just whatever. And uh, I think they had 19 awful kings. And um, I might be getting my numbers wrong. And then the south had a lot of bad kings, and they had some good kings. They had a queen also who was wicked, but um, uh, you had guys like Asa, Jehoshaphat, um, Hezekiah, Josiah. Uh, Those are some of the good kings in the south. And Josiah is the last good king. He brings about a big revival. We're looking at 641 B.C. to 610 B.C. Uh, If you look at chapter 2, verse 13, I'm not going to read the verse, but in chapter 2, verse 13, uh, Zephaniah is foretelling the doom of Nineveh, which had been prophesied 50 years earlier by Nahum. If you remember any of our lessons from the previous weeks, Nahum, 50 years prior, pronounced God's judgment upon Nineveh, and Zephaniah is following up upon that. If you look at chapter 1, verse number 4, the big thing of Zephaniah is he's denouncing idolatry. And if you know anything about Josiah's reign, Josiah is sweeping away all the idols of Judah. And Zephaniah is preaching that. So look at 1.4. It says, I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the Kemarims with the priests and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and that swear by the Lord, and that swear by Malcolm, and them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired for him. So he's bringing judgment upon idolatry, and Josiah the king is sweeping it away. So let's put two and two together. Josiah is executing this, but Zephaniah is preaching this. So Zephaniah is largely responsible for the revival that's going on under Josiah's reign. Josiah brings a lot of outward reform. The people's hearts didn't really change because as soon as Josiah died, they went sideways and really quick. But outwardly, he reinstituted the Passover. He did a lot of great things. One of the greatest kings of Judah next to David. And Zephaniah is the man preaching this stuff. Zephaniah is the mouthpiece of God. That tells me that if there's going to be revival, Amen. God's people need preaching, Amen. right? Through the foolishness of preaching, God ordains, you know, God saves them that believe. So preaching, we don't do a lot of sharing from up here. Amen. We don't have a lot of programs from up here. If guys get behind this pulpit, if it's not me, it's somebody else, the goal is to preach the word, Second Timothy 4. The command is preach the word. Don't preach your opinions. Amen. Don't preach politics. Amen. 
Don't preach like cultural things. Preach the word. We want to give you book, chapter, and verse. And Zephaniah was wagging that finger and preaching to these people. And Josiah is just instituting the reform. But Zephaniah's preaching is the catalyst for the revival that Josiah saw. Um, key words, which we'll talk about tonight. The day of the Lord, mentioned seven times and referred to about 20 times in the book. In the midst, mentioned five times. And jealousy, mentioned two times. And for that reason, Jesus Christ is pictured as a jealous Lord, right? He is a husband, right? So there is a jealousy, a natural jealousy, and a logical jealousy that he has. And the theme of the book is, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. We'll see the jealousy of God for his people in the book of Zephaniah. So the breakdown is simple. Chapter 1, Judah is searched because God is warning about the impending wrath on Judah. Because judgment must begin at the house of God. He starts with his own people. Uh, chapter 2 is the nations being searched. And he's bringing up the impending day of wrath on the Gentile nations that are surrounding them. And then chapter 3, Israel is restored. And we see God bringing deliverance to his people. So what I wanted to do tonight is dive into these phrases. The day of the Lord in the midst and jealousy. Because these are some of the important truths and pictures in the book of Zephaniah. So let's go back to chapter 1, and let's start with the day of the Lord. Referred to 20 times in a three-chapter book. That's a big idea. And if you've noticed in all of these minor prophets, the second coming of Christ is their keynote. That's why we don't read them. That's why nobody teaches them. That's why the world doesn't understand them. Because nobody wants to talk about the second coming. <laughs> That's the key. That is the theme of the Bible. The second coming of Christ. So if I were to see an idea get dropped by the world and get dropped by Laodicean Christianity, it would be the second coming of Christ. So if there was a part of the Bible that most of pro professing Christendom would not get, it would be the Minor Prophets. Because the Minor Prophets are all about the second coming of Christ. right? Which is a big, big theme. So let's look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 7. All right? <clears throat> Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests, and it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice, because he's going to wax some people, that I will punish the princes and the king's children. Remember, he's searching Judah in chapter 1. So this is a warning against Judah. And all such as are clothed with strange apparel, Go venturing out to like other nations. In the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, second coming every time, in that day, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate. That was one of the gates around the temple. Uh, and in howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. So the Lord is warning Judah. Now, immediately, he's warning them about the Babylonian invasion, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar is going to come down and ransack Judah and burn the temple, right? But Nebuchadnezzar's attack prefigures and just pictures the Antichrist and the judgment that God was going to bring upon as well. So that Babylonian invasion is that precursor of that day. And God's people needed warning because Judah had gone astray in her idolatry. You know, they just, she had set up all her idols 
and just started to forget about God. You know what's interesting? It's the advent of Jesus Christ that contains warnings. When you look at the appearing, when you look at the rapture, it doesn't say, make sure that day doesn't catch you unawares. You don't see that as much. But when it comes to the advent, he says things like, don't let that day overtake you as a thief. Matthew 24, he says, in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. What is that? That's an advent warning. That's an advent warning to the nation of Israel when Jesus Christ is preaching to those Jewish disciples on the Mount of Olives. Why? Because that nation had gotten so steeped in her own ideas, her own religion, her phylacteries, and all that outward pomp and circumstance that God says, you're going to miss me. That's what's going on in Zephaniah. They're so caught up in the outward. They're so steeped in their idolatry. Their hearts are so far from God. He says, you're going to miss me. You better wake up. The day of the Lord is near. Some preaching slipping in. I'm sorry, but we'll get to that a little bit more later. Luke 21, 34. Jesus says it again in that same sermon. He says, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, that's excess, and drunkenness, and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. It's not supposed to take us unawares. What bride doesn't know the day of her wedding? But the world and even Israel may be caught unawares at the second coming of Christ. Now, I know a lot of Christians are not going to be asleep. I know it. I know that. But we're not supposed to be. Uh, Keep reading. Zephaniah 1.12. And it shall come to pass at that time, second coming, that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees that say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. Isn't that what we're like right now? Well, God's up there. I believe in God, but He's not intimately involved in my life. We're practical agnostics most of the time. He, I know God is real. I know Jesus saves, but He has no part in my relationships. He has no bearing on my finances. He can't impede on my schedule. He won't do good or evil. He's just this blind, deaf, and dumb watchmaker up there who designed the whole universe and gave it the gas to run the thing, but He's not really... You know, he has no opinion on the matter. He doesn't care about how you dress, how you talk, how you live. Oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> oh, yeah, he does. Keep reading. Therefore, their goods shall become a booty, and their ho- I mean, be stolen by the enemy, and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, but not drink wine thereof. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near, and hasteth greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. God's coming and the threat of God's coming was to shake Judah out of their sinful complacency. Like, guys, wake up. Even your mighty men are going to weep in that day. Right? The word desolation appears seven times in Zephaniah. Desolation. You know why? Because the day of the Lord is going to make some things desolate. He was going to wipe some stuff out like a man wipes a dish clean, it says in another place in the Bible. Another word that appears four times in the book of Zephaniah is remnant. Because there's going to be a lot of desolation when the Lord comes back, but there is going to be a remnant when the Lord comes back. Amen? Look at verse number 15. Here are some attributes of this day of the Lord. That day, 
is a day of wrath, that's one. A day of trouble, that's two. And distress, that's three. A day of wasteness, that's four. And desolation, that's five. A day of darkness, that's six. And gloominess, that's seven. A day of clouds, that's eight. And thick darkness, that's nine. A day of the trumpet, that's ten. And alarm against the fenced cities, that is eleven. There are eleven attributes of the day of the Lord given. Eleven is the number of destruction. The day of the Lord is a day of destruction. It is not a day of rejoicing. Who would ever think that that is the day you're looking forward to as a believer? Oh God, I can't just wait for you to come from heaven and level me and smack me upside the head and break my mountains and let them fall on me. That's not what you're waiting for. You're waiting for a rapture. You're waiting for a deliverance. You're waiting for an escape hatch to open up and God to deliver you before all this judgment falls like any good husband would. He'd get his wife out of there before the building collapses and Jesus Christ rescues his bride before he pours out his wrath upon a world that doesn't know him. I don't know why people get that mixed up. I don't think they're reading their Bible. Amen. They're listening to any YouTube guys out there. The Revelation, verse 17, and I will bring distress upon men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. That is the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation. It's about distress. The rapture of the church before the great tribulation is about delight, <laughs> right? We are delighting, and that's why it's called, that's why somebody gave it the name rapture, because rapture means to be caught up in joy and bliss, and that's why to be, have, to be raptured is not just to be, you know, we mean it means to be caught out, but dictionary means to be just enthralled in joy and bliss, and that's what we're looking forward to, wherefore, Comfort one another with these words, First Thessalonians says. Where's the comfort if I'm going to make your flesh's dung and pour your blood out? That's not. Things that are different are not the same. Somebody tell Stephen Anderson that. All right. Um, those of you who are watching, I love you. All right. Verse 18. So you got to get that appearing and advent square. The appearing is when Jesus Christ appears in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4, before the judgment of the Great Tribulation to get the church out. That's a day of rejoicing. That's a day of delight. That's a day of deliverance. At the end of the Tribulation, after the Tribulation, um, that's when the judgment comes down. That's the day of the Lord. That's not the appearing. That's the advent. That's when Jesus Christ puts his feet down on the earth as a conquering king. And that's a diff that different. We're coming with him at the advent. He's catching us up at the appearing. One is a day of delight. The other one is a day of distress. This is not deliverance over here. It's judgment. It's wrath. It's, it's horrible. Look at 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Sinners, now follow this. In the day of the Lord, when he comes back, judgment, sinners will have nothing to ransom them in that day. Right? We sing a song, right? I think it's page 215 in the hymnal. Nor silver, nor gold shall obtain. We sing that and apply it to now. But he's saying, in that day, riches profit not in the day of wrath. 
but righteousness delivereth from death. That's why the proverb says that. Because of the day of wrath, your silver and your gold that those rich men have been heaping up to themselves, James talks about, it says, it ain't going to help you. <laughs> you can have your bunker on your private island. I'm coming for you. You're not going to be able to hide in that day, God is saying. You're not going to ransom yourself. You're not going to hide in your underground bunker and escape the judgment of Jesus Christ. But go to Romans chapter 5 if you want to hold it. So there is no ransom for those people that have rejected Christ when he comes in judgment. But look at Romans chapter 5. Is that you? You have no ransom? That's not you. You've got a ransom. Jesus Christ paid my ransom. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 5. Uh, no, not verse 5. For 5, 8, 5, 8, familiar verse. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Praise Jesus. When I was weak and miserable like I am all the time and unable to help myself, that's when he saved me. At my worst, he saved me. But verse 9, much more than. Being now justified by his blood, are you? Say amen. amen. Okay. We shall be future saved from wrath through him. Hey, if you're saved tonight, you've got a ransom when Jesus comes. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's going to save you from that wrath. But when he comes in that day of wrath upon that lost and unsuspecting world, they're not going to have a ransom. Things that are different are not the same. All right. Uh, go back to Zephaniah. Let's look at that second phrase. In the midst. They, all, they kind of tell a story, these three phrases. The day of the Lord. In the midst. Because when the day of the Lord comes, Jesus Christ is going to be in the midst of His people. Amen. Sitting in Jerusalem. Unbelievable. I was thinking about Mrs. Hutter. You know, I sent a text out. Many of us know Grandma Hutter. Uh, she was 102 years old. She prayed for the church building. She prayed for a church to be over there on the south shore of Staten Island. That church was there in response to her prayer. She's in heaven now. And I think I found out Monday night, Tuesday night at dinner, I looked at my kids and said, Mrs. Hutter's been in heaven for a day. Or the next day I got up at 6 a.m. I was like, Mrs. Hutter's been there for 12 hours. Right? She's in the midst of him. Right? She's in the midst. I mean, how amazing that is. But imagine one day he's coming down to be in the midst of his people. Look at Zephaniah 3.5. Now the first half of the book, now there's two in the midst. In the beginning of Zephaniah, he's in the midst for judgment. He's coming with the smackdown. Zephaniah 3.5. The just Lord is is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. So one part of this book shows Jesus Christ in the midst as a judge. He's not judging from up there. He's not just hurling asteroids from Alpha Draconis, right? He is coming down himself as a conquering king and bringing that judgment and that sword that goes out of his mouth, which is a devouring fire, Jeremiah 23, and that flame is going out of his mouth like a sword, devouring the Antichrist, burning up his enemies, just making them like as the chaff before the summer threshing floor. That's, that's intense. <laughs> you want to be behind Jesus in that day, not in front of him. If you're in front of him, you're going to be calling for the mountains to fall on you. If you're behind them, you're going to be screaming with Pastor Mel. Woohoo! 
You know, you're going to be riding that stallion joy, joyfully. Second half of the book, if you look at 315, he's also in the midst of for salvation. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. See that? So when Jesus Christ comes back in the midst, part of it is he's judging, he's getting rid of the wicked, and he's saving the remnant and establishing that remnant in the land. He's in the midst for judgment. He's in the midst for salvation. Um, So in that way, Zephaniah shows us God as severe and loving. The goodness and the severity of God, right? The God that comes to judge and the God that wants to save. We see both of those things. Look at Zephaniah 1-2. I'll show you. Zephaniah 1-2. The book of Zephaniah begins with sadness and gloom and threatenings of wrath. See this? I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. Yikes. That's verse number two, God. He just said, I'm going to obliterate everything in Judah. That shouldn't be there. That's heavy. That's a threat. And God will keep that threat. He'll back that threat up. But you go to the last chapter, chapter three, verse 17. What I'm saying is, the book begins with sadness and gloom. The book ends with the sweetest love song in the Old Testament. This is one of the sweetest songs in the Old Testament. It is God singing over His people. 3.17, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with singing. Imagine that. That little remnant that's been hiding from the Antichrist, and he comes back to save and redeem, you know when he finally sets up that kingdom, you know who's going to be singing? Jesus Christ will be singing. That's unbelievable. Now in heaven it says, we're singing to him. Revelation 5, right? We're singing that new song, Worthy is the Lamb. We're singing to him. When he comes back and he sets up his kingdom, it says, he's singing over his people. Wow, what joy that must have given him to finally sit down on that throne and see his father's plan executed and see his people there. I mean, wouldn't that be something to be one of those people that hid in that tribulation time, resisted the Antichrist, and been, been delivered, and Jesus Christ can sing over you? Amen. Spiritualize that. Wouldn't that be something if Jesus Christ got some joy out of you? Amen. If you re- resisted filth and sin and the world's ways? I mean... My goodness, people, if that's not the thing that motivates you, I don't know what can motivate you. If it's not, the Savior to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. You know what you give the crown back? Because it never was about the crown. Amen. It's about, Lord, I wanted to make you pleased because you always please me. I wanted to give you something because you always give me stuff. Right? Just, I like to put a smile on your face for the million smiles you've given me. I like to bring you some joy because you've brought me so much joy. And in that moment, if that's not what's motivating you to, to do what you do while you do, then I don't know if you get anything in the judgment seat of Christ. If it was just for Him, I think it abides the fire. And just to kind of put a smile on His face. Uh, William Cooper, who wrote some of the songs on our hymnal, I think he wrote, There is a Fountain. He said, Punishment and chastisement are the graver countenance of love. 
I mean, the book of Zephaniah has got some heavy chastisement, some heavy punishment. But you know what that is? That's just the love of God coming through. Amen. Right? For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. For Israel and for your children and for God's children whole. Hey, if you don't love your children, you'll let them do whatever they want. That's not love. License is not love. You just give them license, do whatever they want. Oh, because I love them. You don't love them. You hate them. The Bible says you spare the rod, you hate your child. But if you hold them accountable, you getting this, guys? You hold them accountable, and you kind of get a chastening every once in a while, and it seems like my parents are so strict. Why? Because they love you to not see you go wayside and go swim in the sewer and jump in the pig pen. If I didn't care, go do whatever you want to do. I'm too busy. I got stuff to do. But if they care... And God cares about His children. That's why He keeps a tight leash and He kind of gives you a little paddle when you go off the leash or try to go off the leash a little bit. The book begins with sorrow. All the moms and dads are saying, Amen. Thank you, Pat. All right. The book begins with sorrow and ends with singing. And all of this we see a proof of God's love. So, go to Zephaniah 2. Making sense so far? Amen. Ooh, I'm cruising here. Cruising. I have to slow down. And Zephaniah shows us, when the Lord God is in the midst, would it, oh, that it could be tonight. You see, three things are going to happen. Number one, a faithful remnant will be delivered from captivity when Jesus Christ is in the midst. And man, literally, yes, there's going to be two-thirds of the nation of Israel perishes in the tribulation. Zechariah tells us that. Only a third makes it through the fire. They side with the Antichrist, they go against God, and they're destroyed. One third makes it through. A faithful remnant will be delivered. I'd like to be in the remnant of the church age. Because <laughs> if we learn anything from Israel, just like most of the nation will go astray, most of the church is going astray. And we may all get to heaven, but I want, I want to reign. I want all God has for me. And a faithful remnant will be delivered. Number two, the Gentile nations will be converted. This world wants to take Jesus and God off your money and out of your pledge and sanitize him from the public square. No wonder he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, it's like pretending oxygen doesn't exist. Well, I can't see it, touch or taste it. No, but it's what's giving you life, stupid. <laughs> you know, and I can't see, touch or taste God. No, but it's what's giving you life, stupid. Right? You didn't come here by yourself. The apple tree didn't show up without a parent tree, and you didn't show up out without God. That's called science. Follow the science. It's called the law of uh, uh, biogenesis, right? Life only comes from life, and God gave us life. It all traces back to the one who is life. And one day those Gentile nations who shook their fists at God will one day bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And some of them will go into the millennium. And number three, in the millennium, when Jesus comes, people will be able to worship the Lord anywhere. Not only Jerusalem. They have to go up to Jerusalem yearly, yes, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I know. I know where it is in Zechariah 2. But look at Zephaniah 2, 9 to 11. Watch this. <clears throat> Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Amnon as Gomorrah. 
even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. That's all second coming right there, right? Because the days, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Sodom, right? The days of Lot. All right, keep going. 10. This shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. Didn't he say, do not I fill heaven and earth? Though you're going to make a pilgrimage to the Feast of Tab- to the Tabernacles, uh, to, to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, people are going to be able to worship the Lord anywhere. It says, everyone from his place, they're going to worship Jesus Christ. Go to John chapter 4. Man, we can't get the whole Republican Party to rally behind one person or the whole Democratic Party to rally behind one person. How about the whole world worshiping one person? Amen. Not the Antichrist, Jesus Christ. John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. He says, Jesus talking to this woman of Samaria. Our, uh, and she says, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, Jesus is prophesying a time when men could worship God anywhere. I know spiritually that's fulfilled now, but literally it's going to be fulfilled then. Wow. Got me? Because back then the Jews said, it's got to be at Jerusalem. And the Samaritans said, it's got to be Mount Gerizim. Zephaniah says, it's not a place, it's a person. It's the presence of God. That's where you worship Him. And you know what? The natural man is always looking for natural ways to worship God. We've got some, I'm sure we've got some uh, former Catholics in here. Have you been to St. Peter's? I have. I mean, Rome, you know, just statue after statue after statue after Pieta after cookies running around, all this stuff is there, right? All this stuff is there, and it's the natural man just looking for something sacred, something physical. Mecca in Saudi Arabia, right? That big black rock that billions of people pray to every day. It's a physical thing. That's the natural man. In India, thousands pilgrim make a pilgrimage to bathe in the Ganges and carry back the sacred water. Right? That's the natural man looking for a sacred spot, a holy spot. God says, no, it's never about that. It was always about your heart. Amen. Okay? Uh, go to Exodus chapter 20. All right? It's an earthquake. Stop. All right? Exodus 20. My poor boys, they're getting it left and right, these guys. Exodus 20. All right? And the last word, the last phrase, is maybe perhaps the most important. Jealousy. You know why it's important? Because your God is a jealous God. Exodus 20, verse 4. Here is, um, <clears throat> moving in the second commandment here. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them 
nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Now, he's not jealous out of cruelty. He's not jealous because he's stingy or envious, like the world says. He's jealous out of love for his people. He's jealous over your heart. Look at Exodus 34, verse number 12. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, capital J, is a jealous God. So he's telling them, there is again a warning against idolatry, because I don't want to share you. (laughs) See, God loves his people so much, he doesn't want to share their heart with anybody else. Isn't that the way anybody would feel about their loved one? A wife towards a husband, a husband towards a wife, a parent towards children, a child towards a parent. You know, you got this stuff going on now, like this polyamorous relationships, like stuff is wicked, twisted, crazy stuff. Uh, I was hearing about somebody the other day that just once professed to be Christian, now professed to be bi-curious and, you know, I don't know they're going to, but she's still married and what? Huh? I don't know what God you have there, but I mean, God wants your heart. You want your children's heart. You want your spouse's heart. You want your loved one's heart. And God's, I want you, I don't want to share you. Zephaniah 1. I'm going to show you this jealousy in Zephaniah now. Zephaniah 1. Man, if we're, if, if we're not close, then I hope somebody pushes a button. <laughs> it just makes it a good shot. Because it's hard to imagine how much crazier this roller coaster can get. Zephaniah 1.18. Neither, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the Fire of his jealousy. Go to chapter 3, verse 8. 3 8. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. The fire of God's jealousy burns in the face of their idolatry. It just burns God up that they want to love and worship anything and everything but Him. Ever wonder how God feels every time you step out on Him? There it is. The fire of a jealousy. Have you not read Proverbs chapter 6 where it says, Jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. That's what he's talking about. God said, you know what it's like to be jealous? I, I'm jealous over you. And in the day of vengeance, which is the day we're talking about, the day of the Lord, you're going to see the fire of my jealousy. It's going to consume things. So with that said, let's go, uh, let's go chapter 1, verse 12. I got two big ideas from the book, and then we'll be done. 
So the big ideas are Jesus is coming, right? He's going to be in our midst and he's jealous. So if that's true, all right, if that's true, if Jesus is coming, first big idea, if Jesus is coming, y'all need to wake up. You need to wake up. Zephaniah 1.12 says, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and, and punish the men that are settled on their lees. He's going to search them. The day of the Lord would be a time of examination for His people, exposing their idolatry, revealing the secrets of their heart, showing them their sins. Now for us, the church, when Jesus Christ comes for us, there is an examination at the judgment seat of Christ. And God may reveal the idols and topple the idols in your heart. He's not going to send you to hell and He's not going to get you with the fire of His jealousy, but he may, His eyes of fire may burn up some of your life and some of your rewards may go up in smoke because you really weren't with Him, loving Him, caring about Him. Go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. That scares the bejesus out of me. That's a healthy fear. Amen. That's why you put your seatbelt on when you go home tonight. You don't want to fly through the windshield if somebody stops short in front of you. And it's a healthy fear. It's not just reverential trust. It's a healthy fear of the Lord that this mighty God is going to search your life when you get to the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible calls it, calls it a terror. Somebody a couple of years ago didn't like that doctrine, wanted to call my hand on it. Say, well, I don't think God's like that. I know, because you set up a false God. <laughs> Right? That's because you made a God in your own image. But the God of the Bible says, no, I'm going to come, I'm going to search you. And in Romans 13, 11, the Bible says, and that knowing the time, do you know what time it is? <laughs> that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Even if Jesus doesn't come back for 20 years, it's closer than it was yesterday. Amen. So, wake up. If you know the test is coming, if you know the examination is coming, you should wake up and get ready. Right? You know the midterm is coming or the final exam is coming. Guess what you do? You kind of spend some time getting ready. You know the examination is coming. Right. Spend some time getting ready. 1 Corinthians 15. What are we supposed to wake up to? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34. First Corinthians 15, 34. Ready? Awake. Let me let you see it. I will get a drink of water. See it? It's a command. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's saying, wake up and do what's right. Amen. That's what it means, wake up. You know, if you're going to heaven, stop living like hell. Amen. <laughs> That's what he's saying. If you're going to heaven, stop living like hell. Awake to righteousness. Christ saved you to purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. If Jesus Christ saved you to be good, then start doing some good. You ever notice how in Titus he tells them, Maintain good works. Maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. He says, wake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 
maintain good works, this is good and profitable to men. Hey, your holy living and your testimony will speak more volumes than that track you slipped the guy. Because you slip that guy a track and then go cuss out somebody, guess what? They're going to throw that track in the garbage. But if you have a holy testimony and they're watching you for weeks and weeks and weeks or years and years and years and then you get an open door, guess what? You're going to have some clout with that person, some stick with that person, some influence with that person. You're supposed to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. When it's dark, it's easy to just shine. If you, were, if you had a flashlight outside, would you have to announce to people, I got a flashlight! You see my flashlight? Come to the light, flashlight! No, the moths would be there, right? No, if you're out there in the dark living a life of holiness and righteousness, they're going to know you know God. It doesn't excuse you from opening your mouth. I'm not saying that, but God says, awake to righteousness. Your life speaks more than your lips all the time. You know what the Bible says about, you know, somebody asked me this week, I got a great, I get these great emails. This one was great. I should almost pull it up. I get reception here. I got to pull, I got to pull this one up. Do I have it? Am I going to pull it up? Oh, give me a second here. They want to, you know, they want to ask you questions about your church and the church and stuff like that. They're very entertaining. I don't think I have reception here, but they gave me a whole list of things. One of the questions, are you woke? Is your church woke? And I said, I gave him this verse. I said, this is the only verse that you can be biblically woke to. <laughs> this is a, the only woke in the Bible that's to be woke is to awake to righteousness. Uh, because the Bible says of a Christian, 1 Timothy 5, 6, she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. He said, if you're living in pleasure, it's like you're asleep. It's like you're dead. You're there, you're saved, go to heaven, but you're snoozing. And in Ephesians chapter 5, you know what he tells the, the Christians there? In Ephesians 5, if you want to turn over there to Ephesians 5.14. Now, he's just talked about reproving the darkness, not having fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Uh, Shame to even speak of those things which are done to them in secret. You're sometimes darkness, but now ye light, verse 8. Don't be a partaker with them, all this stuff. And then he said in verse 14, Wherefore, because of what I've just said, awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. That's not a verse about resurrection. That's a verse about a resurrected life. Stop living in pleasure. Stop living with the wicked. Stop joining up with the darkness. And Christ will give you light. And you'll shine as a light if you just wake up. Wake up. Wake up. There's an eye problem among God's people. Idolatry. I want this. I want that. I like this. I need that. I think this. That's idolatry. We're not worshiping stones and dum-dums like from Night at the Living Museum. Night at the Living Museum? What is that? Night at the Museum. Uh, but, you know, we're worshiping our ideas. 1 Thessalonians 5, last one. He's saying, wake up out of your sleep, Christian. Wake up out of your sleep. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. You're all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, 
Let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about that rapture day when he comes to deliver us from the wrath that's going to come. Verse 10, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. In other words, Jesus Christ is coming whether you're looking for him or not. So wake up so you don't miss something that God might have for you. That's the first big idea. Go back to Zephaniah, and I'll give you the second big idea, and then I'll say amen. First big idea, if Jesus is coming, you need to wake up. Second big idea, if Jesus is coming, you need to draw nigh. You know what's interesting? The book says so much about the day of the Lord. And Zephaniah's name means hidden of Jehovah. The prophet that speaks so much about the day of the Lord, his coming, is named hidden. Zephaniah 2.3 Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness. Ye shall be, it may be, ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Zephaniah preaches about the day of the Lord, and his name means hidden of God. Now go to Psalms. Let me just, we'll finish in Psalms here. Let's talk some doctrine real fast. That faithful remnant is going to ask to be hidden in God, to hide themselves in God, to draw nigh to God, and for God to hide them under the shadow of His wings. Psalm 17, verse 8. A prayer of David. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of Thy wings from the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about. You see the tribulation in there? That remnant being hunted? Go to chapter 27, look at verse 15. 27.15, that's not what I want, 27.5, I'm sorry. 27.5, For in the time of trouble, like Jacob's trouble, tribulation, he shall hide me in his pavilion, In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. How about chapter 31? 31 verse number 19. 31, 19. Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man, in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. See? One more, 57. Verse 1. No. Yes, 57.1, yes. A prayer of David when he was in the cave. 
when Saul was hunting him like the Antichrist, hunting the nation of Israel and that remnant of Israel. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Now you want some parallels? Exodus chapter 19, they've just escaped whom? Pharaoh, right? And God says, I bore you up on eagles' wings. Then over here in Zephaniah and Psalms, it's all about being hidden under his wings because now they're running from Pharaoh again. Pharaoh's a type of the Antichrist. So doctrinally, Israel's going to pray these prayers in the Great Tribulation. They're going to be drawn nigh. They're going to know He's coming. They know He's coming. There's an appearance of Jesus Christ in the middle of the Tribulation. I don't understand it all, but in Revelation 6, somebody sees Him, and He's not coming back yet. So somehow they know his, 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 a, there's an appearing that goes on in the Tribulation. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about it. It's foggy. It's misty, but somehow they know He's close, and you see them when that happens. They draw nigh. They ask Him to be hidden because they know that wrath is coming that's their doctrinal prayer when they know he's coming they say lord let us get close to you hide us under the shadow of your wings but spiritually when we see trouble coming we see things coming down the pike when we see things coming down our lane you know what the response should be let me get a little closer let me get a little closer lord hide me lord let me find some refuge in you lord some peace in you, Lord. Help me, Lord. Give me that verse. Give me that strength. Give me that joy until these calamities be overpassed. Because like the waves licking over the boat, there will be an end to the storm. It's just, what do you do when the storm is rocking? That's what defines us. And I don't like that message any more than you do. I wish I had a magic wand to make all the storms just vanish. But it just just doesn't work like that. It's just not what's best for us. And we have to know that He knows what's best for us. So until these calamities be overpassed, the prayer has got to be, be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me. You know, I want to trust in the shadow of your wings. Just give me that little covert, that little, little respite from these waves. Like Charles Wesley wrote, Hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storms of life are past. The name of that song is Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And if you know Jesus loves your soul, let's pray tonight, pray for each other. Just pray that God would hide you. And it's not when it starts to hit, that's not the time to draw back. That's the time to draw nigh. Let's pray. Lord.